your Bible to Acts chapter 19, and we left off in verse 21. Acts 19, verse 21. Wednesday nights, we're going through the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse, and we find ourselves in Acts 19. So let's pray together. Fathers, we're in your word tonight. We pray that your word would get into us, that you would send your Holy Spirit to pour out his strength and his insight upon your word. Just give us ears to hear and hearts to understand. God, I pray you give me grace and clarity in teaching your word, and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. We are at the beginning of Paul's third missionary journey. It began when he left Antioch to come to Ephesus. So technically, the beginning of chapter 19 is the beginning of his third missionary journey. This is actually our third week in Acts chapter 19. The city of Ephesus is a wicked city that desperately needed God's touch, many like the cities of the world today, and God uses the apostle Paul. We ended our study last week where there was such a move of God, Jesus was magnified, that the people came and took their books of witchcraft and they burned them. And it wasn't something that was forced or manipulated. It was organic because they saw who Christ was. Like These things have to go in our lives. As we get into our study this week, we see that a riot breaks out in Ephesus because of the movement of the gospel. So let's look in verse 21. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit when he passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. So Paul's making decisions on where he should go based on the Spirit. The Holy Spirit had put upon his heart. He purposed in the Spirit that it was time for him to pass through. When he'd passed through Macedonia and Achaia, these regions in Greece, that he would go to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. From Jerusalem, he would go to Rome. Now, how Paul gets to Rome was probably not the way that he was anticipating as we'll continue to study the book of Acts. But he's going to go back and visit the churches in Greece, then head to Jerusalem. Verse 22, So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. So he sent to Macedonia to, to two that ministered his friends, Timothy and Erastus, and says, I'm eventually coming your way. We last see Timothy with Paul in chapter 18, verse 5. And here's where the commotion begins in verse 23. And about that time, there arose a great commotion about the way. It's Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And the city is now in turmoil because there's so many people that have come to know Christ as their Savior, the local economy has been affected. People are losing the almighty dollar because people are getting saved. Specifically, the Temple of Diana and the shrines, these false idols, are not being purchased as much in Ephesus and throughout Asia. So the guys that make these idols, that make these shrines, they're upset. They see their money going out the door. Now, if you want to mess with people, mess with their money. A lot of people are okay with Jesus until Jesus starts affecting their business. People come to know Christ as their Savior, and all of a sudden, their business is being affected. They're like, wait a second. You can do a lot of things in the community, but you can't mess with the money. I don't know how this would would look in Colorado Springs, you know, but it's God touching the city in such a way 
that when people make money off of wickedness, there's no longer a supply for them. They're like, something's got to change here. So that's the, the commotion that happens. And I think God desires to do this in a city. He desires to stir things up in a good way. Verse 24, for a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. So he makes these shrines and sells them, and he, no small profit to the craftsmen. He, he made much money uh, in selling these shrines. In verse 25, he called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, men, you know that we have a prosperity by this trade. So not only is he doing well, but so are the other craftsmen of these shrines. He's saying, guys, I don't have to tell you that this is a good income for us. Verse 26, moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying they are not gods which are made with hands. So not just in Ephesus, but throughout Asia, Paul is convincing people it's not a god if man makes it. And isn't that true? If, if man can build it, it's not a god. It's not the one true living god. It's a false god. If it's a house, if it's a car, if it's a job, if it's a website, you fill in the blank. It, it's, it's not the one true living god if it's made with hands. Verse 27. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of failing into dis, disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. So not only are people buying the shrines, but they come to this temple in Ephesus, the temple of Diana, to worship. And we know this uh, to be true. When there's an attraction in a local city, it helps the local economy. Pikes Peak, it helps our local economy. It's a, it's a mountain that's visited by people all over the world, and they come and ride the train up and hike the incline and drive their car up, and, and that helps our, our local economy. So for Ephesus, it wasn't Pikes Peak. It was the Temple of Diana. People came from all over to worship in this particular temple. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This is a quote about the grandeur of the temple of Diana. Concerning this temple, an ancient writer said, I've seen the gardens of Babylon, the Colossi of Rhodes, the immense pyramids, but when my eyes turned on the temple of Diana of Ephesus, all the other wonders of the world lost their brilliance. This is the power of the gospel. This is the power of Jesus Christ. When people came to know Christ, they were so impressed with him that they weren't interested with the temple of Diana any longer. So verse 28, now when they heard this, they were full of wrath. Isn't that just a great term? You know, that's the biblical way of saying really ticked off. And they were full of wrath and cried out saying, great is Diana of Ephesus. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord. Having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companion. Paul has his buddies with him, those that are doing ministry with him. Gaius and Aristarchus, they can't find Paul, so they grab his travel companions. I wonder if Paul bumped you on the shoulder and said, hey, you want to travel with me? You want to go on a missionary journey? There'd be part of you that'd be like, oh, this is going to be awesome. 
I'm going to see God move. I'm going to see God work. And it's going to be incredible. We're going to have some great prayer times. And then there's another part of you that says, I better just sign my death certificate now. There's no doubt there's going to be some suffering that's involved with Paul. It was a dangerous task to travel with the Apostle Paul. In verse 30, when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. So Paul wants to jump right into this riot. He was concerned about the life of his friends. But those that love Paul, they say, no, Paul, you, you can't go into this place. Verse 31 Then some of the officers of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. So those officials, they could see this is a very dangerous situation. They say, Paul, you better not go into the chaos, into the confusion. Verse 32, some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused and most of them didn't know why they had come together. Sounds like modern day politics, doesn't it? One saying one thing, one saying another. Everybody's confused and left going, why in the world did we come together? I can't get a straight answer. So here's this riot that's taking place in, in this city. And obviously people are upset. They're getting caught up into the emotion. But wait a second, why am I so mad? And that happens in life, doesn't it? Well, sometimes we find ourselves all spun up. I have a good friend that says, all spooled up. And that's a good term, you know, when you go fishing and you get all the tangles there. And sometimes our soul just gets all spooled up. And we're in this argument. Well, what exactly am I arguing about? Why, why am I so upset? They didn't even know why that they were in this plate of, of confusion. In verse 33, and they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. The Jews normally would be blamed for a the problems in Ephesus, even if it wasn't their fault. They were the scapegoats. The Jews knew that, so they send their spokesperson to try to calm the crowd. Verse 34, but when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, great is Diana of the Ephesians. I hear that he's a Jew. They say, no, we don't want to hear from him at all. You see the bias that's there towards the Jewish people. And then for two whole hours, great is Diana of the Ephesians. It's always interesting when you've got to defend your God. If God's God, he can defend himself, right? So here they are trying to stick up for their God and to keep their God going, prop up their God, if you would. Verse 35, and when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, what man is there who doesn't know the city of the Ephesians is the temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus. City clerk is not a good title for this man. He's the chief executive officer of the city. He's appointed by the Roman government in this colony. He has great authority in the city. He's the mayor. He stands up and says, come on guys, you can calm down. Everybody knows that Ephesus is known as the temple of Diana. Verse 36, therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. That's always good advice. When we're really upset, it's probably a good idea just to calm down and to not do anything rashly when we're in that place of confusion. Verse 37, for you have brought these men here who are neither robbers or, or of temples nor blasphemies of goddess. These guys don't 
rob temples. They don't steal your shrines. He, he brings truth into the situation. He calms the multitude. Verse 38, Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are pro-councils. Let them bring charges against one another. There's proper channels to deal with this. Verse 39, But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar. There being no reason which we may give to an account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. This is God's hand. This is God's hand of protection over Paul's travel mates and over the apostle Paul. Where this is taking place is in the amphitheater in Ephesus. And it is an archaeological spot today. You can look it up. You can Google it. The amphitheater in Ephesus. Many years ago, it must have been 2004, I had the opportunity to go to Ephesus and stand in this amphitheater. And that's always a neat opportunity to, to be in a biblical spot. It's, it's a massive amphitheater. This riot was, was huge. There's a lot of upset people. And here's one city clerk, one city officer, one mayor that's able to calm everybody down and Gaius and Aristarchus go home healthy, praising the Lord. Paul's not brought into this. Paul's not killed. God's hand is, is upon it. But we see how the gospel had stirred the city, that Jesus Christ, as Christ was magnified, it changed people's ways. It, they came to know Christ, and then they couldn't hold on to their witchcraft. They came to know Christ and they couldn't hold on to their idolatry. They had to get rid of their shrines. They said, I don't want to go to the temple of, of Diana anymore. It's the transformation of Christ. So we're going to get into chapter 20. Continues with Ephesus. After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. So what we're going to find is Paul's going to head up into Greece, visit some churches again, then he'll come back down to Miletus and meet with the elders of the church of Ephesus on his way to Jerusalem. So verse 2 through verse 6 documents his travels in Greece. Now when he'd gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed three months. And when the Jews plotted against him, as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And Sopater, he didn't like to take a bath. He was a Sopater. Sopater. Do you have any of those in your home? Of Berea accompanied him to Asia. Also Aristarchus and Saundus of Thessalonicus and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. There's a principle here. And you're saying, really? There's a principle here? Paul didn't do life alone. He traveled with other men. He did ministry with other men. And God never intended us to do life alone. He intended us for, to travel through life in relationship. We're created in God's image, and God in and of himself is a relationship. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three distinct persons, but yet one God. Life's no fun alone, isn't it? I think we can all attest to that. We don't do well when we're alone. And Paul knows that about himself. He knows the strength of traveling and doing ministry together in numbers. And if you find yourself alone, press into relationships. Press into relationships. 
Be friendly. Start to reach out to people. Share what's going on in your life. Say, hey, let's get together. But we don't want to be in that place where, where we're alone. The enemy loves it when we're alone. I'm convinced that the enemy wants to isolate us. Say, oh, don't reach out to people. You've been there before, and they've burned you. They're going to burn you again. You know, Christians, they're, they're no good at, at relationships. You can do it on your own. You can do it by yourself. Where I'm from in southern Oregon, there's large redwood trees. And these redwood trees have very small root systems, actually. And they grow together. And their, their roots will link together. And it will provide the strength of the wind coming off of the ocean. Sometimes the trees will blow over. And many times it's the redwood that's not connected in its root system to any other trees. And that's oftentimes for us as believers. Is sometimes relationships are difficult. Sometimes they're messy. It's going to involve perseverance and forgiveness, but it's so, so very important. It's our strength system. And Paul displays this. He models this. He travels with these group of men. In verse 5, these men going ahead waited for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. Verse 7, now on the first day of the week, When the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. First day of the week for the Jews in the ancient world this time was Sunday. That's when the day began. So they're worshiping on Sunday, not on Saturday, which was the traditional day to worship according to the Sabbath. Now there'll be some that tell you if you really love Jesus, you're going to go to church on Saturday, and that's going to be your Sabbath. And I say, praise the Lord. We have a Saturday night service that we're trying to get people to come to all the time. But we also have a Sunday morning service, don't we? And this is an example where there's the freedom in Christ to worship on Sunday. Christ was risen on Sunday. So we find the early church worshiping on Sunday. But guess what? You can worship on Monday. We've got some really cool Bible studies that happen here on Tuesday, men's Bible study. And women's Bible study is about ready to to kick off. We should pray about getting involved. The School of Discipleship meets on on Tuesday nights. You can audit some of those classes. It's Wednesday, and we're worshiping on Wednesday. Are we allowed to worship on Wednesday? Absolutely. There's freedom in Christ to esteem each day alike. If you want to have Saturday be your Sabbath, by all means do it. If you want Sunday to be the day you set aside for worship and rest, by all means do it. So they're meeting on the first day of the week. They're coming together to break bread, and this is communion. They're remembering Christ's death. They're remembering his shed blood, what we're going to do tonight. And then Paul gets up to teach, and he speaks, and he speaks, and he speaks till midnight. It's midnight, and he's still going. In verse 8, there were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together, and in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking deep in a sleep. He was overcome by sleep, and as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. It's a little bit embarrassing, isn't it, to fall asleep inside of a message. And I've got the best seat in the house. <laughs> Sometimes, Lord bless you, you, you're tired. You've had a long day at work, a long week at work. You're running around with kids and grandkids and fill in the blank. And it's Wednesday night, and my voice can be pretty monotone sometimes. And 
I'm up here, wah, 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 verse 21, wah, 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 and your heart's there. The spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak, and before you know it, you're deep into sleep. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to do that. You need rest. We all need rest. It's happened to me before as well. Not while I'm teaching, but while I've been listening to a teaching. It's embarrassing. You know, then someone kind of hits you on the side, or worst case, you start snoring or something like that. Oh, oh, did anybody see me, see me sleeping here, you know? How about for Eutychus falling asleep on the Apostle Paul? You, you, fit, you, you choose your most respected pastor. You know, that has a big radio ministry and write, writes books, and you're longing to hear him teach, and he comes and he teaches, but then he just won't stop. He just keeps going and going and going. And now it's midnight and you can't handle it anymore and you fall asleep. And for all eternity, it's known that you fell asleep while the Apostle Paul's teaching. That's Eutychus. The only reason we know this guy is because he fell asleep while Paul was teaching. But also it's kind of embarrassing for the Apostle Paul. Sometimes pastors talk about that, you know, there's some preachers that are so boring, it's like watching paint dry, you know, and it's like, it's really not the fault of the person falling asleep. There was some responsibility on the pastor as well. And Paul is going, oh no, I knew I should have ended at 11. Why did I go till midnight, you know? This would be the worst thing that would happen for a pastor is, is you taught so long, someone fell asleep and they fell out of the window and they died. They died because you preached too long, you know? And it's a young man and you're like, oh, he had so much life ahead of him. He was engaged, he was going to have a family, and now he's dead, you know, on the sidewalk. This is church gone bad in verse 9 right here. <laughs> verse 10, but Paul went down and fell on him, embracing him. He said, do not trouble yourself, for his life is in him. Don't get confused. He, he is dead, but Paul believes that God is going to raise him from the dead. In verse 11, now when he'd come up, he'd broken bread and eaten and taken a long while, even till daybreak, he, um, he departed. And they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. So God raised Eutychus from the dead. God shows great grace in this particular situation. When God raises someone from the dead to this life, I think that it shows God's power over the grave. God's giving us a little picture He's giving us a little foreshadow of the fact that the death does not have the final word. And for those that are in Christ, we're not raised back to this life most of the time. We're risen to eternal life, to forever be with the Lord. So we go on into verse 13. Then they went ahead to the ship and sailed to Assos, there intending to take Paul on board. For so he'd given orders, intending himself to go on foot. And when, he, and when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and came to Mylene. We find this little word that's inserted here in verse 13, two letters, us. So Luke joins the journey as well, but doesn't feel the need to include his name. These verses are interesting because Paul insists to come on foot. He exists to walk this point of the journey instead of go on the ship by himself. Normally, he always travels together in the group, but he makes an exception here. Why do you think that he did it? For prayer. I think Paul wanted some time to be alone with the Father. 
For him to head to Jerusalem is going to be extremely dangerous. He knows this. Everybody in Jerusalem hates him. They, they want him dead. He's going back to the hot spot. And this is a real secret, I think, in life, is knowing when we need to draw away and spend time with the Father. Jesus did it. Jesus modeled this for us. Jesus didn't spend all of his time with people. Most of his time he did. But there was many times where he left the multitudes, left the disciples, and he just got away with the Father to spend time with the Father. And I don't think it's always for answers. I don't think it's always for difficulty. It's out of relationship. It's, we've got a heavenly Father that loves to be with us. And the closer that we get to him, the more that we just want to spend time with him. Okay, I'm going to stay up a little later tonight. I'm going to get up early this morning. I'm going to take my lunch hour and just go for a walk and talk with the Lord and listen for his voice. I believe that's why Paul went and walked by himself. We don't know that for sure. In verse 15, we sailed from there and the next day came opposite Chios. And the following day we arrived at Samos and stayed at, I'll let you take your best shot at that one. The next day we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so he would not have to spend time in Asia for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem if possible on the day of Pentecost. He wants to celebrate the day of Pentecost. So he gets the elders together at Miletus and he gives them a message. And this is his parting message. And this is a rich section of scripture that's very applicable to every pastor, to every elder that serves inside of a church, but it's also very applicable for us as well. It teaches us so much. Verse 17, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, you know from the first day that I came to Asia and what manner I lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears, and trials which happened to me by plotting of the Jews. So we learn a lot about Paul. That's good lessons for us. Is first, when he came to Asia, he says, I lived among you. So Paul came and he lived among the people that he served. Paul wasn't living this lavish lifestyle where his standard of living was above all of the people that, that he ministered to. He came and he lived among them, just like Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we see that's a good thing for our lives. We're not above anybody. We're here to serve, and Paul shows that. And then he was serving the Lord with all of humility. He wasn't in Ephesus first and foremost for the people. He was there for the Lord. He'd been called by God to come to Ephesus, and he was serving God in humility. Now, what is humility? It can be hard to wrap our minds around humility. Is it going around and just telling everybody your faults and feeling bad about yourself and woe is me and all of those, those kinds of things? Not necessarily. That's still pointing to ourselves. Is it walking around talking about all of our strengths and how good we are? Absolutely not. Humility is seeing God for who he is and seeing ourselves for who we are and submitting ourselves to him. And so, so Paul had this figured out. He served God in humility, and in that humility, God poured out great grace upon the apostle Paul. Then also, he had many tears because of the trials that happened to him, because of the Jews that wanted to kill him. So he endured these trials in great tears. So here's the model to follow. Live with God's people, not above them. Serve the Lord with humility, and endure trials. In verse 20, 
how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house. Paul gave everything that was beneficial to the elders and the church of Ephesus, even if it was difficult to hear. These are the kind of conversations of, bro, your zipper's down. You've got a nose hair the size of those redwood trees that you were talking about in Oregon. You might want to consider plucking your eyebrows. I can't see your eyes. It's those kinds of conversations. Real friends don't let other friends walk around with big boogers in their noses, right? Say, hey, I care about you. You might want to take care of that. You could put someone to death with your breath. Here's a breath mint, right? Those are those true good friendships that you know. I'm not going to hold back anything that's helpful. That's what Paul is saying. It may be difficult, but if it's helpful, I'm going to tell it to you in love. He taught it publicly. He, he taught it openly, but he also met house to house. He met individually. In verse 21, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ began his public ministry with this, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. John the Baptist, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. The disciples, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Here's Paul, and he came to both Jews and Greeks with the same message, repentance towards God. We can't leave that out. We're sinners that need the grace of Jesus Christ. We need to understand that we're sinners, to repent of our sin, to turn away from our sin, and turn to Christ for salvation. Without the need for repentance, there's no good news. We've got to turn away from the bad news to receive the good news. So repentance towards God, turning toward God, and then faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ, trusting his free gift of salvation, declaring him as Lord, allowing him to be the Lord of our lives. That was the message of the Apostle Paul, should be our message as well. In verse 22, and see now, I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there. Paul's got a difficult decision to go to Jerusalem. There's even going to be believers that try to convince him not to go, but he's bound in the spirit. He's convinced that the spirit wants him to go. It's difficult to make some decisions in life, isn't it? There's a lot of things in scripture that are absolutely black and white. It's, a, it's an issue of righteousness or sin. And are we going to choose righteousness or sin? But then there's decisions that don't fall into that category. Like which job should you choose? And they're both wholesome jobs. There's not one of those jobs that's unethical or unmoral. How do you make that decision? You lift it up to the Lord and ask him to lead you by the Spirit. And many times God will lead us in those decisions by where we have peace. That's where he led the children of Israel with a cloud in the wilderness. And he leads us through his peace where this isn't a moral issue. This isn't an issue of righteousness or sin. God, I need your peace. Where, where's peace in my heart? Oh, I don't feel any peace about doing this. Or, oh, I feel a lot of peace in that way. And, and Paul, he experienced that leading from the Lord in that way. Verse 23 Except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. So he says, I don't know what's going to happen in Jerusalem, but God has told me that every city that I go to, there's going to be chains and tribulations. How about that for a ministry? You get saved, Lord, I'll do whatever you want me to do. Okay, everywhere you go, you're going to have chains and tribulations. Can't you give that to somebody else? <laughs> 
A lot of times we look at Paul's life and we go, we want to be used like the Apostle Paul. Well, for Paul to be used by God in this way, it meant suffering. And a lot of times it's the same way for us. Suffering and impact, they go hand in hand. And verse 24, but none of these things move me. Consider that for just a second. These things don't move me. Even though God has told me I'm going to have chains and tribulations, I don't move away from God's call. Nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So how can Paul not be moved even in the midst of certain suffering, chains, tribulations? He tells us that he doesn't count his life dear to himself. Now, please allow me to explain this. What does this mean? It means that we don't get overly attached to this life. That our number one goal in this life is to not be comfortable, but to be effective for God's kingdom. Jesus put it this way, that he whoever takes up his cross and follows me finds life. But whoever tries to save his life will lose it. You know what that means? That we get to that place where we say, my life is done. My life is over. It doesn't belong to me. It's not about me. It's not about my wants or my comforts or my goals. I'm surrendering all that to Jesus Christ for what he wants and what he desires for my life. And we fight that. I fight that on a daily basis. Every day I fight that battle. Am I going to take up my cross or am I going to take up the throne of selfishness? And my flesh wants to take up the throne of selfishness. And what Paul's saying is he's, I've settled this issue. I don't count my life dear to myself. I've surrendered my life to Christ in this way. And how does this happen? I think it happens by getting a glimpse of the sacrifice of Christ and also the glimpse of heaven. We realize it's about heaven. It's about people going to heaven. If we could see the glory of heaven and the devastation of hell, it'd be a lot easier to not be concerned about this life and realize this life is about getting as many people to heaven as possible. That's the goal. That's the desire and lining ourselves up with God's priorities. And with this, we don't find Paul going through a midlife crisis. We don't find him going through manopause and having to go out and get a sports car in order to feel good about himself or run around in sexual sin to feel like he's still a man. He doesn't have to go through that, does he? Because his life belongs to Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, so that I may finish my race with joy. This is com compelling and convicting. All right, I'm going to be transparent, okay? I'm going to just tell you guys something about me. Don't hold it against me. But apart from Christ in my life, every year I get more cranky. I just do. You know, when I was younger, it just seemed like the joy flowed much more freely. And then the closer that I get to 40, as it's rapidly approaching, without Christ and the Spirit of God living in my life, it's very easy to be Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh, right? <laughs> and walk around feeling this way. I have met very few genuine, joyful, elderly people. <laughs> Most of the time, when people are elderly they are not finishing their race with joy. You know what I'm saying? 
And I know where I'm headed if I don't get this settled with the Lord. I'm going to be a cranky old man in my wheelchair, you know. Good to see you too. Go away, you know. I'm reading my Bible. (laughs) I'm going to teach some theology, Ah, you know. But Paul says, I don't want to go that way. I don't want to go that direction. I want to finish my race with joy. It's not just enough to finish, and that's enough. That would be awesome just to finish what God has for us. He actually wants to do it joyfully. He wants to end this race, watch each step of the race in joy of what God has for us. And that's tied to not counting our lives too dear to ourselves. Because the ministry that he's received from the Lord, he wants to finish it. He wants to finish it with joy. He wants to testify the gospel of grace of God in his life. In verse 25, And indeed now I know that you all, among whom I've gone preaching the kingdom, will see my face no more. Paul's being prepared by the Lord that he's coming towards the end of his life, that these sufferings are ultimately going to lead to martyrdom. He knows he's not going to be back and see the elders of the church of Ephesus. Verse 26, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. This goes back to the Old Testament where God speaks and he says, if you know that danger's coming for someone and you don't warn them and they die, then their blood is upon you. You're responsible for their blood. But if you warn them, then you are not responsible for their blood. And what Paul is saying, they're familiar with this concept, is your blood is not on my hands because I gave you the whole counsel of God. He spent three years in Ephesus, and in that three-year time period, he took them through all of the Old Testament. He took them through the teachings of Jesus Christ in the Gospels. The book of Acts is currently being lived out. Paul's writing much of the New Testament, and he didn't hold back from any of the, the counsel of God. Now, it's going to take a lot longer here at RMC. It would be great if I could get through the whole Bible in three years. I think I'm on more of a 12 or 14-year plan of getting through the whole Bible. But I hope to someday be able to stand before the Lord in this congregation saying, we've gone through the whole Bible. We've gone through it from Genesis to Revelation because it is the whole counsel of God. And we need to learn the scriptures in its entirety. And this is where we get the foundation for what we do on Wednesday nights. In verse 28, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock amongst which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. The order here is so important. To the elders, first take heed of yourself. It's very easy for pastors, elders, spiritual leaders to always be giving the prescription, to giving the antidote, but not to be receiving themselves. And first, before we even minister and serve other people, we have to check our own hearts. Take heed to yourself first. And that, that's true for church leaders. That's true for all of us. So important if you have a heart to pastor or be an elder, amongst which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. It was the work of the Holy Spirit in these men's lives that they should be overseers. Their role is to shepherd the church of God. Spiritual leaders are to be under shepherds of Jesus Christ. What do shepherds do? They feed, they care, they tend, they protect. And that's the job of a pastor. I love the end of verse 28. Speaking of the value of the church, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Maybe you don't feel very valuable. 
you don't feel very important. Well, you're very valuable to God because he gave the blood of his son for you. Maybe you know that in your own life. You know that you're valuable to God, but what this verse is saying is also the person sitting next to you and behind you and upstairs and the one that comes Saturday night, and Sunday morning, this weekend. We're excited to have our one place service instead of the three services here at the weekend. It's going to be one service downtown because we're emphasizing how we're all one body. And we should care for one another, but not just our church family, but Vanguard across the street and Mountain Springs and Woodman Valley Chapel and Calvary Worship Center and these great churches in town. Why? Because Jesus shed his blood. Never give up on the church because Christ never gives up on the church. He shed his blood. We're valuable to the Lord. Verse 29, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in, not sparing the flock. Wolves are opportunists. So they know when Paul's gone, there's an opportunity to destroy the flock. How do you identify a wolf? Because they won't spare the flock. A wolf's always going to come in and destroy the people of God. In verse 30, also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. A wolf has the most effectiveness because they come from within the people of God. They've gained a place of trust. They come from among you, Paul says. And what are they going to do? They're going to draw away the disciples after themselves. Look at a leader's diet. Does he serve God's people or does he devour God's people? And then look at a leader. Where does he point people? Does he point people to Jesus Christ? Are you hearing things like, don't follow me, follow Christ? Don't be a follower of man, be a, a disciple of Jesus Christ? Or is he promoting himself? And is he saying, I want people to be following me? And if you're paying attention, you'll see which direction it's starting to go. In verse 31, therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Paul knew this day was coming and he warned them with passion. He warned them emphatically. Verse 32, so now brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Church, brothers and sisters in Christ, I know you have people that you love deeply. Commend them to God's grace. Put them into God's hands. Allow God to take, take, take care of them. Paul, as he leaves the elders of Ephesus, he leaves them in God's grace and God's care. Verse 33, I've coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Paul wasn't in it for the money. In verse 34, Yes, you yourselves know these hands have provided for my necessities. And for those who are with me, can you picture Paul opening up his hands and his hands are calloused, cut, a man that has clearly worked hard to build these tents. I've shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ that he said, it's more blessed to give than receive. Paul had laid hold of the missions of, mission of Christ he wanted to live his life to be a blessing. He knew it was more blessed to give than to receive. Verse 36, And when he'd said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more, and they'd accompanied him to the ship. You see the great love that Paul had for them. 
the great love that they had for Paul. This was their goodbye here on this earth, but they knew ultimately that they would be together forever. Let's stand together and let's pray.